Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Paul Vallée, Associate Fellow with the GCSB's Global Fellowship Initiative. For the next few weeks, I'll be talking with subject matter experts to explain issues of peace, security, and international cooperation. Thank you for tuning in. This spring, cybersecurity is very much on our minds, just as current events of uh, different kinds frequently remind us the challenges for our individual and collective security posed by the increased digitization of our lives and societies. Yet, cybersecurity encompasses a large spectrum of problems. Today, our discussion will focus rather on how to protect our much-exposed minds as we navigate a digitalized world. To do so, I'm joined by Dr. Hani Dabach. Dr. Hani Damak, who's been an executive in residence at the GCSP in 2019 and is now an alumnus fellow, is a digital strategist. After his PhD in information engineering and electronics, he began a lengthy career with Hewlett Packard, rising from system engineer to digital business development manager. He then became an independent consultant and senior advisor to companies. As an early adopter of Web 2.0 for marketing campaigns, he has focused his attention on the impact of disruptive digital technology on customer behavior and how to harness it for business benefit. This comes with an increased attention to what he calls cybersecurity of the mind. And it is an area uh, which he will develop this May as a guest speaker to the GCSP's Leadership in International Security course. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Hani. Thanks very much, Paul, for the invitation. To uh, begin uh, our conversation, my first question to you is, what is the state of cybersecurity of the mind today for individuals, cooperations, or organizations? Do you think the basic problems have been given solutions, or are you concerned with a newer generation of issues? Thanks, uh, Paul. I mean, first of all, I think there is a serious security breach of our minds that I don't believe has really been fully grasped. Um, by the population. I, I, I use that term a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I uh, like to use the term cybersecurity because it catches the attention of, of so many today, but I'm not really talking about cybersecurity of systems, of IT systems. I really am talking about uh, a security breach of, of our minds. It's, it's really a breach that's hiding in plain sight. Uh, and I think it has serious far-reaching consequences uh, to our democracy uh, and to our society as, as a whole. So I don't really believe that this is really fully under control uh, today. And uh, it really has um, started actually, uh, the whole thing really started around 2007 when there was a kind of uh, a coming together, alignment of the, of the planets, as it were, with the introduction of the iPhone, Android, Kindle, Twitter, Facebook uh, started opening up. And in those days, we went from the dial-up connection to the always connected. And then for people a lot younger than me, this might sound a little bit strange, but there was a time when we were not always connected. We actually had to have a modem and plug it in the wall and we'd hear that noise connecting us to the, to the internet. This we take for granted today, but we're always connected. Once we're always connected, it then becomes very easily always trackable. And once it's, we're always trackable, then we're always profiled. <laughs> and, and, and we really then go from one stage to the next to become predictable. We are able to predict very accurately when you will change uh, banks. We're able to predict when you will stop your subscription. It's actually predictable. Amazon can ship you a product before you even order it. And, and from there, it be, we became manipulable. All that really has come from that 
large mass of data collection that has been going on. Uh, and we get raw data and get out of that, deduce from that really a lot of behavioral knowledge and inferences about us. This is what we sometimes call the attention economy, or I like to call it the no-free-lunch economy, whereby we're getting these so-called free products for us to, to use, but come at a very big cost, uh, at what, I, what I call a kind of a Faustian deal, where we're selling our souls for something that we, you know, has, has a huge cost to us. And whereas a lot of people today are aware of micro-targeting of advertisements. People are aware that, oh, it's nice to have an ad of a product that I enjoy or will will enjoy. It really goes a lot further than that. And there's a a, a lot of um, behavioral analysis and uh, ways in which uh, we get connected back and back again in pervasive techniques to stay on uh, on those um, applications or on social media or, or wherever. If you think about, just to give a little bit more context to, to it, if you think about a, a classic, let's say, tripartite agreement between three parties in, in the classical economy where you've got a producer, you've got a customer, and you've got a product, right? And in the classical sense, if you allow me to use the HP example, HP would be the producer, the customer would be maybe yourself, and the product could be a, a laptop, right? So um, HP produces the product, you purchase it, and you pay, you pay HP. This is what we're used to, but this is turned all upside down in this uh, attention economy. And if you take that triangle and apply it to today, uh, You'd put Facebook as the producer, right? The product is really uh, your attention and the customer is the advertiser. Mm -hmm. So in that agreement, we are suddenly no longer a customer, but we are a product. And the better the product is, the more the customer is willing to pay, the more the advertiser is willing to pay the producer. So in that agreement, unfortunately, we're not the customer. And whenever the customer is always right, it's not us. And, and that then becomes embroiled in, in, in all sorts of kind of far-reaching consequences uh, that become a way of manipulating us to, 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 to different sets of actions. Well, uh, your <laughs> words are uh, really quite enlightening in, in, in part because they've anticipated uh, what would have been my, my next question, but perhaps we can elaborate a bit on that, mm. uh, which was precisely on this issue that you raised about awareness. And uh, obviously, what you've just uh, underlined is the fact that uh, since the dynamics of the relationship itself has uh, been transformed, this may be uh, one of the factors why we do hear about some of the issues you're talking about. But uh, we've got, uh, I think, a problem in terms of uh, following and being up to date as to what exactly the problem is confronting us. So I wanted to um, have your feeling about, you know, whether the uh, this notion of awareness and the um, the problem of influencing is that in any way making progress uh, in terms of awareness among the general public? I think not enough, Paul. I think, as I said uh, earlier, people are maybe aware on the surface that we are being targeted, particular advertising, but they're not really aware of the invasion of privacy. Uh, that is that is occurring. Generally speaking, I hear often 
around me. This is maybe anecdotal, but you know, in terms of privacy, I have nothing to hide. So what's what's the issue? But actually, privacy really is a, is a, is a right. We behave differently when we're alone. We don't have to have anything to hide. We actually need private time and, and need that privacy. If uh, if I told you hypothetically that um, a government can read your mind, can can actually know what you're thinking and what you're going to be doing, you'd be horrified. I mean, you might have images of the Stasi or KGB or whatever, these old movies. And uh, if I tell you that actually this is what's happening today, but it's by private companies and the amount of of data and knowledge that they have about you uh, is concentrated into so much power by private enterprises that are unaccountable to anybody uh, today. That should raise alarm. And I don't believe that enough um, is really being said about it or maybe being said more in specific, more like uh, specialized uh, media and and so on. And uh, people need to be really aware the extent of which this is this is actually happening. Indeed, moving along from you know the the very problematic question of uh, whether that awareness is sufficient or, or not, perhaps now we could uh, see whether we have any ideas or or, or solutions going a little bit beyond uh, raising that public awareness. The, the way we're having this discussion here. So I was wondering whether, in your feeling, do you have uh, do you feel that there are certain types of organizations or, or entities, whether private or public, that are emerging perhaps as good models in uh, handling this question of improving cybersecurity of the mind? Well, in terms of maybe improving the awareness of it, I, I can think of uh, Center for Humane Technology mm-hmm. from uh, Tristan Harris, who do, do amazing work uh, in, in that respect. And I think this is uh, something that I could only recommend people to, to follow and, and, and read about. In terms of... Um, actually doing something about it, about it. I, I think it really boils down to a push and a pull, if, if, if you like. I mean, on, on the one hand, it's in our own hands to be able to recapture that critical thinking. It's the only, if you like, uh, safeguard that we have for breaching our minds, restore that, that critical thinking. And I think this is something that goes into all sorts of areas from education and schooling and parenting and so forth. To, today, what is happening and one of the consequences of, uh, of, of this breach is the spread of misinformation today, misinformation and disinformation. And misinformation is, my, is spread by people we know, not necessarily with nefarious intents, uh, intentions behind it. And, and we need to be able to question, be critical about the source uh, and, and, and so forth. So there's a lot actually that can be in our, in our own hands to be able to, um, to do something about. Maybe it is something uh, about refusing that so-called free uh, software and being able to decide, well, you know what, this isn't free I'm paying a lot for it. I'd rather pay from my wallet than from my own soul, as, as, as it were. The real, to me, the real source of all of this is that business model that I've, uh, that I've described. It's also the recognition that this data that is being taken amassed is ours, and we need to re- 
cover that right and, and that ownership. So there's a number of tools around that people might not be fully aware of that we're able to, to use to be able to reclaim that, uh, that right. There is also data rights organizations that are coming up uh, from grassroots uh, efforts. Uh, mydata.org would be, would be another one that focuses on the data itself and, and, and the ownership of that data and what, you know, companies are not allowed to just take, take that data. I would uh, also hasten to mention a professor of uh, Harvard Business uh, School, Professor Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote really a, a seminal book on surveillance capitalism. And uh, in uh, some articles she wrote, which talks really about uh, taking back that, that ownership and saying from that push perspective, governments have a big role to play as well. In this, and we can see that today in the U.S. Uh, about uh, breaking up of the uh, of these big uh, big five companies uh, such as Facebook and, and, and Google, but it goes beyond that uh, as well. And uh, she says something interesting about uh, actually forbidding the trading of data. And it sounds uh, maybe too too extreme, but when you think about it. We forbid, governments forbid the, the trade of organs, the, the trade of people. It does make sense when you realize that that data is ours. So a lot of can be in our powers as, as users. We need that awareness. And we also expect a lot from our governments to take back that kind of control mm-hmm. because there's a lot at stake here. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of stuff. Well, um, uh, I get that we each, uh, of course, have uh, as uh, adult and educated individuals our own behavior to uh, put in check, and we've illustrated that very well. Uh, and obviously, as you've also pointed out, governments can use their regulatory powers to uh, shape the way uh, this business is being conducted, what to allow or what to uh, foursquare. So I was also wondering in that respect, within the the industry, of course, that uh, you have some knowledge as well. And bearing in mind that the problem you're telling us about is already considerable uh, as it is, is there any thought given to modeling or predicting future kinds of uh, threats to to this issue? Uh, Are are we anticipating that if our regulation manages to put into check uh, the trading of data, there will not be a, a next loophole that can be used for future business. Mm-hmm. That's a very, one. It's, a, it's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I knew the, the, the full answer to it. The question is, is, is good because you touch on an important point, and that is the crux of digital technology today in that it is a solution waiting for a problem. In past revolutions, we start with a problem and we try and find a solution to it from the agricultural to the industrial. How do we mechanize? How do we make things go faster, uh, etc.? Today, we can, therefore we do, and then we try and find a problem for that, mm-hmm. for that solution. And that's what makes it all the more challenging. Uh, you know, when, when I joined Twitter, I think it was 2008 or something like that. It was through SMS and, and just mm-hmm. a, a little nostalgia here. And um, people told me, why do you... Why did you join? Well, I mean, Twitter was designed and made to share what you had for breakfast with friends, right? I mean, ultimately, that's what it is. If you had told me back then (laughs) 
that Twitter would be the main megaphone of communication from a U.S. president, yeah. I would have laughed off my seat. And, and even Jack Dorsey <laughs> would have said the same. And, and the same with Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, you get that sense that we're creating that Frankenstein that we're kind of losing control over. Uh, and, and, and we need to have tech-savvy people who are, surround our, our, our politicians and our policymakers that are able and capable to look into the crystal ball about tomorrow's problem rather than today's. Uh, and, and, and what solution is being built today that's going to create that you know, problem uh, in, in the future? And, and that is something that I see very nascent uh, today that I haven't really seen. You know, we've seen CTOs in, in governments and uh, in, in, in various governments, uh, but as that as, as a particular you know, full-fledged, uh, powerful department is... is I think yet, yet to be seen, but that is a very important point that it's about tomorrow rather than, rather than today. The, the anecdote I always like to give, I'm going to leave it running out of, out of time here, is that um, when I did research for, for my PhD on speech recognition, I, I, I discovered in one of the research papers that uh, researchers wanted to find a good let's say, application for speech recognition. We're talking about 70s and, and 80s. And, and they figured, well, a postal service uh, for, for parcels would be perfect because it's in a, in a warehouse, a gigantic warehouse with conveyor belts. And the operators would punch in the zip code of, of, of a package and it would get sent off in, in the right direction. But because it's unheated in the winter with gloves, the keypads generate a lot of errors. So I thought, wouldn't that be great? That's fantastic. You put a headset, a little microphone, and you say the zip code and, and, and you're away. To cut a long story short, uh, the discovery would have been easier and cheaper to heat the warehouse, take off the gloves, and punch that keypad. It's an example I like to give about uh, you know, a solution waiting for a problem. Uh, and, and that is a, an important issue. Well, remarkable. And um, the uh, maybe the, we have... Time for one last question, and mm -hmm. uh, I asked you the previous one because uh, obviously uh, we're also interested a lot in, in foresight uh, at the mm -hmm. GTSP, but our, our other activity, of course, is executive education. So uh, my final question to you would be, you know, based on uh, the experience, um, whether... Um, now, when we're conducting training courses for people who will be going into IT management or other uh, situations of uh, responsibility, are we integrating uh, enough of this preparedness and awareness uh, into our courses? And, and, and what can we do to, to improve that? I can't speak for all <clears throat> corporate courses, but I think there's room for that. Uh, I think there's definitely room. We, we tend to talk more on the technical side rather than on the human impact side, rather than on the, on the right side. I think there's a lot more that we can, we can do there to, to, to teach also the responsibilities of, of IT management, uh, as well as being able to you know, understand what can be taken what, you know, in terms of data and, and so forth. So I think there's, there's, there's room for that. Uh, definitely. And uh, at the same time for executives as well to, to understand, yeah. uh, you know, there's the IT infrastructure, but the executives themselves also need to understand how far they can go and, 
know, what, what, you know, rights and obligations that we have, definitely. And I'm happy to kind of give that little module at the LISC course uh, as well. It's always an interesting discussion <laughs> and debate. Uh, I think uh, at least uh, the, the most we can say is that we'll, we'll probably uh, come out of this discussion a little bit, a lot more aware of the issue. Uh, so uh, thank you, uh, thank Dr. Baba, for joining us uh, uh, today. That's all we have time for uh, for this episode. So to our listeners, please listen to us again next week to hear the latest insights on international peace and security. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Anchor FM, Apple iTunes. You can also follow us on Spotify and on SoundCloud and perhaps some of the other infamous platforms that we've just been mentioning. (laughs) I'm Paul Vallée with the Geneva Center for Security Policy. And until next time, bye for now.